Hi everyone, I'm Suzanne Delahunty and this is Freedom Hunters, a podcast about inspiring people who have escaped the rat race and found freedom in their dream career. We talk about their career journeys, how they changed career, the challenges they faced along the way and what success means for them now that they're doing what they love. Before we get into this episode, I want to thank everyone for their support of Freedom Hunters. It's been listed in iTunes' new and noteworthy section for the last few weeks, which has helped me reach more people and hopefully provide inspiration for anyone who's feeling stuck in a career they don't love. I hope my guest stories have provided the inspiration and practical advice that will help more people follow their passions. Thanks very much, everyone. Today's inspiring guest on Freedom Hunters is Lucy Beard. Originally from South Africa, Lucy started her career as a lawyer in London City law firms, followed by several years as an in-house lawyer for the UK's largest commercial TV producer and broadcaster, ITV. She then spent two years as general manager of the broadcast technology company, SDN. It was during a grown-up gap year of travelling around Europe that Lucy and her husband, Lee, also a lawyer, were struck with the idea of starting a gin distillery. This led the two back to their native South Africa, where they started up Hope on Hopkins, Cape Town's first artisanal gin distillery. In this episode of Freedom Hunters, I talked to Lucy about how inspiration struck her and her husband to start up in the gin business, how they made the transition from lawyers to distillers, and the importance of family and friends. The interview was done over Skype, so while the sound quality isn't quite the same as a face-to-face interview, you will hear the authentic background noises of a busy Cape Town gin distillery. I hope you enjoy it. I'm so excited to be here with Lucy Beard. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Really good to be speaking to you again. Before you and your husband started your gin distillery, you both spent 16 years as lawyers in London. What originally took you from South Africa to London? So we got there in a roundabout way. I am am from a very small town in South Africa. I grew up there, went to university there and met my husband Lee at university. He was keen to stay in the small town and all I wanted to do was escape. And so I managed to entice him away with the idea of us traveling up through Africa. Um, we had no set plan of where we were going to end up once we'd finished our travels, but we bought a four-wheel drive and took off and took six months and got as far as Greece where we ran out of money. Um, and in Greece, we sort of knew that London was close, a sort of cheap plane ticket away. And also we had quite a few friends who moved there straight after university and were working. And so we gave one of them a call and got on a cheap flight, shipped our, well, left our car in a parking garage in Greece on the promise that it would be shipped and that we could pay for it at some point in the future. And um, ended up in London and we literally arrived sort of the week we had to sign up to convert our law degrees. So without even really thinking about it, just signed up, started studying sort of at night, got jobs as paralegals. And 16 years later, we were still there. (laughs) So did you always want to be a lawyer when you were growing up? No. um, I actually wanted to be an architect of all things. Um, But... my local university didn't offer architecture. So my parents said to me, you know, as long as I was 100% convinced that's what 
I wanted to do, I could go to another university. But they worked at the local university, so I got a cheap deal on fees. And so it was that kind of balancing act of, do I really want to do it that much? Or actually, should I just go to Rhodes and see where I end up? Ended up, And I decided to do a BA arts degree. So I majored in English and philosophy. And then after that, realized, well, there's not all that much you can do with that. So I thought, I better do something where I can actually get a job. Um, and my housemate had been studying law and just sort of through chatting to her, I decided actually that was something that was really attractive. Um, and so set out on the LLB and yeah, ended up qualifying as a lawyer. Although I think chose to try and get into the TV root side of things just so that there was a little bit more of an kind of arty and interesting angle. Cause yeah, I think the idea of straight standalone corporate or contract was was not all that appealing. Yeah, actually, that's similar to my story, actually. I kind of, <laughs> yeah, the idea of law wasn't hugely appealing. I didn't know what else to do, but then I managed to steer it into industries that I enjoy and find enjoy. really interesting. And also, yeah, hopefully deal with interesting people on the other side as well, which makes it yeah, more enjoyable. Oh, definitely. So did you enjoy being a lawyer in media? I did. Um, and although actually towards the end, I managed to sort of wiggle my way out of strict law and was running one of the sort of standalone little businesses for ITV. Um, but, you know, with a bit of a focus on law, but also a focus just on general commercial stuff. And I really enjoyed that. Although I also think sort of where I ended up um, in a kind of broad um yeah, broad-looking legal job was quite interesting and exciting because it wasn't sort of strictly contracts. We were doing digital switchover and that kind of thing, which was more than just law. So I think that ensured that I enjoyed it. Um, but I don't think I ever saw myself doing it for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a common story with a lot of lawyers, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All desperately trying to do something else. <laughs> At the end of your time in London, um, you and your husband took a year to travel the world before returning to South Africa. How was that? So that was amazing. And actually, we left with the intention of coming back to London. Um, and with the intention of coming back to our jobs, but sort of I certainly had in mind that I wanted to change but I sort of hoped to be able to get that in at ITV. Um, Lee had been threatened with work in Russia of all places. I was quite excited about that as well. Um, but ultimately about three weeks into our trip which was actually we'd bought a camper van and so it was a very much a, a chilled drive around mainly southern Europe and Morocco. We started in Morocco because it was winter and the weather was good there. And Morocco just chilled us out to, you know, sort of another level. And our corporate life seemed very far, far behind us. And which, you know, right then, ultimately, we started thinking that, no, we didn't want to go back to corporate. We wanted to do something different. And it actually my kind of architecture yearnings and interior decoration style yearnings kind of reared their head. And initially, we thought about coming back to London and starting an interiors shop. And then reality hit and we're like, we've not got the money or, you know, the nows to actually do that. Um, and it was then literally a case of figuring out what 
we might want to do and where we might want to do it. And in, in Morocco, we stayed in Marrakesh. There is the most amazing campsite just outside the city, sort of with the mountains behind. And it was beautiful, kind of almost five-star camping. But it was for sale. And we were like, oh, maybe we should buy this campsite. Um, and then we were like, no, that's being completely ridiculous because I think the sale price was in euros and it was ridiculously expensive, mm. unsurprisingly, because it was amazing. But um, it really got us thinking and sort of thinking, well, yeah, we'd far rather do something more social in hospitality. We love food and drink. Um, and so we sort of in our travels, we were just thinking about business ideas. Yeah, I think there's nothing like travel to put everything in perspective and really have a good think about your life, don't you think? Completely. And we met quite a few people along the way on our travels who were doing exactly the same thing. Um, I remember bumping into one couple who were wonderful. They'd been teaching in Wales, I think, and they were going back to set up a mobile pizza company. They bought a little tuk-tuk and, you know, that was their dream. And, you know, there were all sorts of people like that. Um, and it literally took the time of traveling and the downtime you have in traveling. You can really just, you know, think, get perspective on things and, yeah, be out of the rat race. I think that's important, you know, to actually step out of the rat race because while you're in it, you're so busy kind of keeping up with it that, yeah, you don't have time to think about things properly. And was there any particular place that really resounded with you both where you got some particular inspiration? Spain. Um, and the gin thing really came from Spain as well. Um the Spanish, well, and the Portuguese have just such a wonderful attitude to life and seem to really embrace friends, family, eating and drinking. <laughs> Those are like the best things in life. And um, just, yeah, their priorities just seem so different. Um, and Portugal actually reminded us of growing up in South Africa, sort of in the in the late 70s and early 80s, <laughs> minus apartheid, of course. But the kind of relaxed lifestyle, the importance of family, the importance of just kind of, yeah, good quality food, company, drink. And yeah, that, that was really inspiring. And then Spain was also just having this gin revolution um, where even the tiny villages, the local little bar, would have a whole shelf of different gins and different tonics and, you know, the whole drama of how they were presenting it. Um, and later when we were doing research, sort of once we had formulated the idea, I remember sort of the, the following year, the stat on, on drinking gin in Spain was something like 56 million litres of gin was drunk in Spain in 2013, which was that the year we were there. And there were only 30-something million Spanish. So, I mean, you know, that is a hell of a lot of gin. Okay, half of Europe goes there on holiday and drinks gin. But it was just phenomenal. You know, it was really all-encompassing and everyone was, you know, whether they were just drinking Gordon's or whether they were drinking a, a craft gin, it was all about, you know, the huge glass it was served in and the garnish it was with and the different flavors. And, it, yeah, it was kind of almost magical. We were like, wow, this is, you know, something completely new to us and, and different. It, yeah, it was really inspiring too. Yeah, I have to say there is something about gin that to me it says summer. It's a beautiful weather drink and I can oh, so gee, see gee. why you would fall in love with it while sipping a gin and tonic on a terrace in, in a little yeah. village in Spain. Yeah. 
travels, your plans change from returning to London to going back to South Africa. So what happened then? Yeah, so as I say, I mean, we started, we realized early on we didn't want to go back to corporate life. We realized then after some initial plans of perhaps doing something different in London, we realized that, no, London is a jolly expensive place and it's an amazing place to live when you are in corporate world because you're earning lots of money, you're working hard, playing hard and, you know, living life to the full. Um, but it wouldn't be so easy if we were no longer had the, you know, with the comfort of corporate salaries. It was on our year out and we started to realize the importance of friends and families. It's all very well. We loved our year traveling, but you miss just actually you wouldn't mind sharing a gin and tonic with a friend or, you know, your mom or whatever. And so we started to think, actually, maybe we should consider coming home. And Cape Town had been one place. Neither of us are from Cape Town. Cape Town had always been one place that we wanted to spend some time in because it is. It's an amazingly beautiful city. It's also the food and drink capital of South Africa. Um, and it's got a big European influence in that lots of Europeans have holiday homes or homes here where they do kind of a six month, six months lifestyle. And so it's very influenced by the rest of the world, unlike the rest of South Africa, which is quite African. Because, um, you know, we were having spent so long in Europe, you do have slight concerns about leaving that all behind. But we kind of we knew that Cape Town still had that little bit of kind of Europeanness about it. And we actually decided in the August of our year, we were in Spain and August holidays kicked in. So the campsite started really filling up and we decided actually to come out to South Africa for 10 days and spend them in Cape Town and really look at it through eyes of, is this somewhere where we could move back to and set up a business? Because it's all very well. We've been home every year and always been to Cape Town, but it's very different with your pounds and your holiday glasses on. And, you know, it's all wonderful. And so we arrived in August and everyone was like, oh, if you can survive Cape Town in August, you can survive at any time because it's the worst month. And, and of course, we had a, why is a wild midwinter and Cape Townians moan about the winter so much, oh mainly because the houses are built for summer. And so they're, you know, lots of windows and tiles and no heating. But we had one week of glorious sunshine when we were in teachers and then one week of rain. But you know, it wasn't that bad. We were like, we have lived in London for 16 years. <laughs> we can kind of do winter. Um, but we also just wanted to, yeah, sort of see what the... Um, small business environment was like. We wanted to just suss out the scene and see what Cape Town, you know, what, yeah, what business we could potentially open um, and whether it was somewhere that we actually realistically would want to live. We realized it's quite amazing. Entrepreneurship in Cape Town is booming. And I think it's because it's a place where most South Africans want to end up living. But it's not the financial capital or the kind of corporate capital. The, the jobs and the money are in Joburg. So people come here and do their own thing, um, which makes it an amazingly supportive environment in which to launch a, a, a business. Um, and it is the food and drink capital, so it made sense to launch a drinks business in it. Um, and, yeah. It's incredibly beautiful. So we were like, yes, it's a no-brainer. We can definitely do it here. But we also, it was kind of, as I say, we'd been in Spain and left Spain to to come here. 
it was in Spain, we were starting to think about gin. And then we really also looked at the South African market in terms of what was happening in the food and drinks industry. And certainly we saw that coffee hadn't boomed quite as much as in Australia, but you know, the kind of, the, the, we'd looked in London, you know, the coffee culture scene was booming. When we left South Africa, I mean, you know, sort of a good cup of coffee was Nescafe. Um, and coffee roasteries, I think there are now more coffee roasteries in Cape Town than there are in London. And the coffee scene was booming and people were, you know, sort of getting into flat whites and, you know, really geeking out about coffee. And craft beer had followed. There are lots of craft breweries. And so we kind of took a, a judgment that gin would probably be next. So the end of 2013, there were two craft gins in South Africa, um, We, you know, because we started doing our research. One of them is still very tiny um, and only real gin geeks w knew about it. And the other is now South Africa's kind of biggest craft gin brand, but then was just starting out and was small. And again, the majority of people hadn't heard of it. Um, and now, oh my goodness, there are like 165 different local gins. Oh, so wow. the scene is totally different. And Inverush, which is... The, the biggest one that I was talking about. I mean, they are now everywhere, basically, you know, and most people who drink gin will have heard of them. Um, it's not just a, you know, if you're a hipster in the center of Cape Town, you you know them. Literally, it's countrywide. And, and they're gin bars and people now at their weddings have gin bars and their gin gifting services. And yeah, so it's it's, the scene has really boomed. And as you were saying earlier, it is a summer drink. And, you know, I think the, the South African sunshine lends itself to, to gin. And so I think the boom has happened a lot faster than we ever anticipated it would. So a lot of people I talk to about their career change have started their new career as a side hustle or once they've saved up enough to get them through those early months. How did you manage that career transition and business startup? It was tough. So we, you know, because we were moving continents, we needed to be all in. Um, and so, and we had quite a lot of savings and, and sold some property in the UK. So we had money to invest. So at least we had funding to help us. But it was really tough because we were changing industry. We had done a lot of research and reading and I was doing a correspondence course on distilling but, you know, there's nothing, it's very different getting your hands dirty. But we also found it challenging because we didn't know the industry, didn't have contacts, and it was all new. And then we were trying not to spend money initially, you know. So actually, I signed up to Lawyers on Demand um, and <laughs> with a view to, you know, sort of, <gasps> maybe I'll actually need to go to the UK and earn a little bit more money and come back. Um, because... Those early stages, I mean, you spending a lot, you're not earning anything. You're not sure that, you know, your business plan is actually going to prove itself. Um, and yeah, it was kind of touch and go. And I think we were only, one of the reasons that made it easier for us is it's just the two of us. We don't have kids. So we said to each other, if we're eating beans on toast for the rest of, you know, for the next few years and eventually have to go back to law, so be it. And I think it was in the back of our minds, we were like, if we have to take legal jobs again, we will and we can. 
Um, and yeah, as I say, I signed up to Lawyers on Demand. I didn't actually ever do a project for them because finally when they had the perfect project, we were suddenly busy and we were like, no, 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 I don't have the capacity to do it. But um, I think the, the kind of in the back of my mind, the comfort of actually we could go out and get jobs if we needed to, that helped. Um, but also it was the, we left it all. And so we could jump 110% into it. And so we were bloody determined to make it work. So it was just sheer determination and making yeah. sacrifices from a lifestyle yeah. point of view. Completely. And again, it's helpful that we were in Cape Town, so we could do heaps without spending too much money. So, you know, we did a lot of biking, running, walking and surfing while we were sort of waiting for licensing and couldn't do too much. But, you know, we were missing out on the going out and, you know, the London lifestyle of eating every meal out and all of that. But, you know, it was a small sacrifice to make. Yeah, I mean, what a great compromise to have to make if you're in South Africa. (laughs) What is the process to becoming an artisanal gin distiller and how do you stay sober? (laughs) (laughs) I know. Um, Well, make a lot of bad gin initially if you don't want to drink it. But um, so we took quite a bit of advice on ordering equipment. So I think sort of the, the two key things as, a, as an artisanal distiller, you decide whether you want to invest in your own equipment and actually do your distilling or whether you just want to launch a brand. Um, and I think because we were going the 110% in route, we needed to have the distillery behind us. Um, and so that meant investing a lot in equipment. So we got a lot of advice, including actually from um, the guys at Sipsmith Distillery in London. We visited them and um, one of, uh, he's no longer with them, but Gerard Evans, who worked for them, gave us a lot of advice on equipment. Um, And we got some local advice as well. And then I did a correspondence course through the International Institute of Brewing and Distilling, just to get some, you know, kind of actual real knowledge behind us. Um, But a lot of it is actually just trial and error. We also spent time with um, one of the other local distillers and he was amazing. He was really happy to share knowledge. We also spent time with brewers. Luckily, we were surrounded by a few craft breweries here. And um, initially, we were actually making our spirit ourselves. So we were um, cooking and fermenting essentially a beer from grain and then distilling it. And so we got a lot of help and advice from brewers. Um, And then ultimately, it is. It's trial and error. Our equipment arrived. We got it working we flooded the place so many times. We had so many disasters, but actually that's the way to learn. Um, and but I'll never forget sort of we'd made our spirit and then it was going to do our first ginning run. And it, we were so clueless. We didn't know, you know, obviously you have to use juniper, but do you use kilograms of it? Do you use grams? You know, quantities, balances. And it was just try, try again, try again. Um, and... The fun part was really playing around with the gin botanicals and different flavors and seeing, you know, what went well together, what didn't work. And then you start kind of getting into nuance of flavor. And that was the fun, creative part. And then sort of in parallel, it was also sort of creating the space of the distillery. We bought this old warehouse. Again, initially, we didn't want to spend too much money, but it was a kind of a bit by bit, do it up 
Um, and I'd always had this vision of a distillery with a tasting room overlooking the distillery floor. And we found this perfect place with which had offices attached, which we could turn into living space, a big mezzanine level, which is now our tasting room. And the, the distillery floor, which initially we were like, it's so huge and intimidating. We had three tiny pieces of equipment on it. Now we can hardly move on it because we've got so much stuff and stock, which is great. But um, it was very much a kind of in parallel, doing up the building, um, trying to figure out what kind of space we wanted it to be, as well as experimenting with the actual gins. So much creativity involved. I actually wanted to ask you about botanicals. Everything about gin is about the botanicals. And I, as I understand it, that's what brings out the flavours in each gin that you make. So you use some local botanicals, is that right? Yes, that's right. So ultimately, yeah. So the difference between a gin and a vodka is gin starts life as vodka and then it's redistilled with botanicals, one of which has to be the juniper berry, otherwise you can't call it gin. Um, and then any number of others. You generally always use citrus, you use coriander just to give body, um, and then after that the world's your oyster. And what's amazing, it's, it's actually the oils in those botanicals, so it's whether it's um, sort of berries, nuts, seeds, citrus, plants, um, bark, spice, it's the oils that give the, the flavor. Um, and plants are an amazing source of flavor. And here in South Africa, we've got this amazing floral kingdom. I mean, we've got sort of plant species here that are nowhere else in the world. We've got, it's called the Cape Floral Kingdom, and it consists of 9,000 different plants. Um, okay, some of which you're not going to use, but most of which are amazingly, anything that's amazingly scented generally gives amazing flavor. And so it was a case of playing around with, with, with all sorts. And um, we do sort of one, our one gin, it's called our Sultra Virgin, it's with, Africa, with kind of what we call African botanicals. And it's incredibly pungent, yet floral, yet fruity. And that's all just from the leaves of these local plants. They, you know, they are just incredible. And I think there's been a lot of world interest in the South African gin scene because of this, which is just so incredible. And there's this actually kind of subspecies called Feinbos, which literally translated means fine bushes, which grow along the coastal region, sort of so around Cape Town. And I mean, sort of, we use one called Buhu, and there are sort of eight different varieties of it from a garlicky one to a blackcurranty one to a lemon one. To, and so you've got all these incredible, amazing, unique flavors. We also sort of have different garnish suggestions for the different gins that we make, because ultimately garnish and botanicals work amazingly together. Um, and good barmen always know, you know, particular types of gin work with different types of garnishes because to garnish, you either want to enhance the flavors already in the gin or complement them. So like with our Salt River gin, it's quite, a, as I was saying, fruity and, and floral. Um, and we often suggest garnishing it with grapefruit just to give some bitterness and cut through the floral notes. And it works really well, even though there's no grapefruit in the gin. It just, yeah, is, a, is an amazing garnish for that gin. Mm, nice. What were the challenges that you faced in starting up your own business? Uh, <laughs> licensing, so kind of bureaucracy in a way, but licensing in particular and money. Mm. Um, we, it was so interesting. Before we left, I remember watching a, a TV program. I can't remember what it was called, but it was Russell Norman from the Polpo Group, 
was giving restaurateurs advice on setting up restaurants. And he quoted an amazing statistic saying, I think it was 35% of restaurants never actually open their doors. And I remember saying to Lee at the time, you know, how can you be so stupid? You know, you spend all this money and you, you know, don't ever get to open. And oh my goodness, when we nearly ran out of money before our distillery actually opened, I was like, I now realize because, you know, nothing goes according to plan. Your time frames, you know, stretch way out for usually, be, you know, be, for things beyond your control. Our licensing it was we would advise would take two months. It took over a year. Um, you encounter yeah all sorts of hassles and hurdles that you have to deal with, which end up costing you far more than anticipated. Our business plan sort of saw our worst case scenario of launch sort of three months after our you know planned launch date, and actually it was six months after. So we nearly ran out of money before we opened. Um, and yeah, you just, you, you really have to just believe in yourself and believe that you're going to get there. Um, we found because yeah, it's certainly a far bumpier ride than anyone had ever warned us. Now that you are doing incredibly well, do you ever look back and go, geez, I wish I was a lawyer again? No. <laughs> I can definitely say no. <laughs> I think that the, the interesting thing is, especially initially, like in the early days, it was just the two of us. About six months in, we took our first employee. We've now got a, they're, they're a team of 12 of us, so there are quite a few people here. But we found we were living, we live on site, so we were living and working in the same place. We weren't often encountering other people. And sometimes you would sort of not escape the distillery at all during the day. Um, and you suddenly, yeah, realize the benefit of having an amazing team of colleagues around you. Um, so we missed that. Um, and we also missed being able to call IT help desk and uh, <laughs> sort out our printer hassle or whatever. But so no, I mean, the, the, it's so amazing sort of going from quite a high stress corporate environment where you realize you're, all the stress is for somebody else to, uh, yes, a stressful environment, but it's okay because it's our own stress and we're the beneficiaries of it doing well. And, you know, that just makes such an amazing difference. Yeah, to actually be invested in it. 100%. And to, to also, I mean, what's so important is for us, we're so passionate about it and it is it makes such a difference just to, you never have that feeling of, Sunday night blues or like waking up thinking, oh, I really don't feel like going to work today. It, it just doesn't happen. Oh, God, that sounds like the dream. It really does. <laughs> Although sometimes we do drive each other mad and it is stressful and it's, yeah, other people drive us mad. And But, you know, it's all, it's all worth it because we're doing what we love and, yeah, it's 100% for us, which makes a big difference. I ask all my guests questions and the first one is what is success for you I wouldn't put it financial although obviously being comfortably or financially is important but I think it's it's a combination of yeah I sort of I feel as though we've been successful because I take immense pride in seeing our bottles on people's shelves and 
yeah, we, I look back and I think of the initial time when we were sort of, you know, not sure if we were ever going to get started to actually employing 10 people, making, we make gin for six other Cape Town brands and we just love what we're doing. And so I think that is sort of having the passion and the love for the business it being successfully financially, yes, successful financially, but more importantly, just, yeah, being an amazing place to work. And I think a, a place where people are happy to be and happy to be associated with that success. And then finally, your travel tip for where you're from or uh, where your family is originally from. Yeah, I'm not going to say where my family's originally from because it's Grahamstown in the Eastern Cape, which is special. But um, living in Cape Town now, I've definitely got to give a travel travel tip about Cape Town. Um, there are so many, um, but ultimately, yeah, sort of the, the best the best tip I can give is I don't know if I'm allowed to say this sneak a bottle of something onto the beach because you're not strictly speaking allowed to drink on the beach. But there's so many tucked away hidden beaches in and around Cape Town. And the best, best thing to do is take a bottle of bubbly or gin, a little bit of gin and tonic and watch the sun go down on a isolated beach. It is just the best. Oh, that sounds idyllic. And also, you you know, you can say that uh, another travel tip is the tasting rooms at the Hope on Hopkins Distillery. Absolutely. <laughs> A must on any itinerary. <laughs> Goes without saying. Lucy, thanks so much for your time today. I've so enjoyed talking to you and best of luck with Hope on Hopkins. Thank you. And hopefully you'll come and visit sometime soon. Oh, I'm there whenever gin and tonic's involved. <laughs> Great. Thank you for listening to Freedom Hunters. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It will give the series a boost and help other people find it. And you can find out more on what I'm passionate about on my website, secondsister.com or Instagram at Suzanne Delahunty. Tune in on the first of every month when another inspiring guest will be sharing their story of how they found freedom in a career that they love.